Our scripture text this morning is Job chapter 17. Hear God's word from Job chapter 17. This is Job speaking, replying to Eliphaz. He says, My spirit is broken, my days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. They make night into day, the light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness... If I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? The the heresy of Marcionism is as alive and well today as it was in the second century. Marcion was a bishop and theologian who taught, among several errors, the idea that the God of the New Testament is a different God than the God of the Old Testament. He taught that the God of the New Testament, who sent Jesus to be our Savior, is benevolent, while the Creator God of the Old Testament is malevolent, a God of jealousy and wrath. In fact, a God who in creating our world uh, that that has so much suffering was either bungling or malicious. These are the things that Marcion taught. And while you may not have heard people today describe God in these exact rather harsh terms, there does remain a prevalent notion among some in the church world that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment in contrast to the loving God of the New Testament who graciously sent Jesus. And uh, this view explains the conscious decision that many make to read and study only the New Testament, uh, which is what Marcion essentially did, or at the very least, only very limited portions of the Old Testament, uh, probably to include only the most basic Bible stories. I would suggest that what can lie behind this separation of the God of the Old Testament from the God of of the New Testament is the difficulty of trying to reconcile what can appear to be contradictory descriptions of God in the Bible. In other words, though it is an error to say that there are two gods in the Bible, it is somewhat understandable from a certain point of view how people might arrive at that conclusion. 
And what I'm getting at is the fact that our God, he is complex, he is multifaceted in his nature and in his ways. So he is loving, he is wise, he is good, he is gracious, but he's also righteous. He's holy, he's just, even a God of wrath. And he's both, right? A God of wrath and a God of love. And it's hard to understand how God can be both and not be a God of contradiction, which if he is a God of contradiction, he's no God at all. The tendency is to think of God as exclusively loving or wrathful. And naturally, people, of course, want to believe right in a, in a loving God, which prompts them to do away with a God of justice and wrath. The solution to this problem is to accept the fact that the one God of the Bible is both loving and just, and in a way that is not inherently contradictory. This is seen clearly in the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. He was sent because of God's love for sinners. And God's love is not explained apart from God's justice, but is in fact best understood in the light of what we deserve according to God's justice. Since our God is righteous and holy and just, any violation of his law deserves his wrath and corresponding punishment. And yet God in his love chose to deliver some sinners from having to experience his wrath. We all deserve his wrath, but he has chosen in his grace and in his love to deliver some sinners. And to that end, he sent Jesus, who though himself without sin, the Bible says he became sin for us in the sense that he took responsibility for our sin before the justice of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he was suffering under the wrath of God that should have been ours to bear for our sins. In Jesus, as is envisioned in Psalm 85.10, in Jesus' righteousness and peace kiss each other. They come together in the Lord Jesus. God's righteousness demands the punishment of all sin and all offenses to his law. His love, seeking our peace with him, met the demands of his own righteousness through Jesus dying in our place. And so in Jesus, there is this perfect reconciliation of God's attributes of love and justice, so that we see that God's attributes are not contradictory, and neither are the Old and New Testaments. More can be said uh, against this heresy of Marcionism. It's not true that the God of the Old Testament is revealed as always wrathful and never loving. It's also not true that the God of the New Testament is revealed as always loving and never wrathful. And yet somehow these reputations have, have stuck in some circles. Yes, the Old Testament reveals God as a God who judges sinners, but the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah God, is also a God of covenant who loves his people and prepares them for the coming of Christ. And it must not be ignored that the Christ who was prophesied to come as Jehovah's servant to provide atonement for sins is promised in the Old Testament, which certainly reveals the love of God. Meanwhile, the New Testament emphasizes, of course, God's love in the revealing of the actual coming of Christ. And at the same time, yet, it should not be overlooked that his need to come implies our sin. and It implies the wrath of God against our sin. And woven throughout the New Testament as well as the Old Testament is also the truth that to reject God's provision for sin in the Lord Jesus Christ is to invite the wrath of God. 
People will inevitably see in the Bible what they want to see. And so Marcy, Marcion's view of the, Bible, uh, of the God of the Bible has struck a chord that continues to ring through the ages. And yet I would point out that he was not the first to wrestle with such things. Long before Marcion lived, Job's friends imbibed the heretical spirit of Marcion. For they are convinced that their Old Testament God is a God of wrath who's ready to pounce on the sinner as soon as he does anything wrong. They seem to believe that God is also loving, or rather can be loving, but basically their God is schizophrenic in his reactions toward human beings, so that if you are good, you are loved and you are treated with blessing, but if you are naughty, you are hated and blasted with judgment. The idea of God being both loving and just at the same time appears to be an impossibility in their thinking. The God of Job's friends was one kind of God one instance and a different kind of God another instance, all dependent upon what we as human beings are doing at a particular time to bring one reaction or another from him. And this has come out in the context of Job's suffering. To Job's friends, the idea of God sending suffering to those that he is pleased with and and that and the idea of him sending suffering to those he's in fellowship with, that's just impossible. No, God sends suffering to those who have sinned and who deserve his anger and judgment. And uh, this judgment might be chastening, okay, yes. It can be at times sent in love. I think they all, Job and his friends would all agree with that. But for Job's friends, this love is a conditional love based on the sinner's works. The system's conditional love of God is a love that shuts off when you sin, but can be turned back on as soon as you offer the good work of repentance. We're not talking, you see, about the initial reconciliation of justification, but a roller coaster ride in and out of the state of salvation and justification. So that like the Arminians of today, who who would say you are saved one moment, but you sin and lose your salvation the next moment, You're restored to salvation once again with your next round of repentance. The system of Job's friends gives us a God of wrath when we sin and a God of love when we are obedient. Two gods based on our works. The idea of God being in a permanent love relationship, a fellowship with a justified sinner, and at the same time ordaining his suffering for his good and wise purposes, that's inconceivable in the system of Job's friends. They can't wrap their minds around God being both loving and just at the same time, and so they are left with essentially two gods. And the God that you have in your experience day by day depends upon your faithfulness. Job has also wrestled with how to understand God in the context of his suffering. He is, he's struggling with how to reconcile God's wrath and covenant love and and how to avoid thinking of two gods. It's evident from the text here in chapter 17, but the idea of a dichotomous God was introduced last time from chapter 16. Last time as we considered, especially those verses toward the end of chapter 16, we saw that the text itself, taken at face value, has Job appealing to God against God. The argument goes like this. 
in the latter part of chapter 16 in verses 18 through 22, which is at the end of the chapter, um, Job cries out for justice. And we might wonder who he expects to avenge him, but it makes the most sense that he's calling out to God for this since it's God who avenges unjust deaths. But it's also God, notice, whom Job anticipates killing him very soon through illness. So it's like he's saying, God, you're the one who's going to kill me, but yet I'm hoping that you will avenge my unjust death. And furthermore, Job says that he has a witness in heaven and that he who testifies for him is on high. It's God who best fits the description of this one who was on high in heaven. And yet this witness on high that Job desires, he anticipates will stand up for him against God, the God who hates him and who has brought him suffering. Job goes on in verse 21 to complete the thought of verse 20. Job's eye pours out tears to God in order that he, and God is the closest antecedent to he, so that God would argue the case of a man with God. So we have God arguing with God. This is the natural reading of the Hebrew. It's frankly often rejected out of hand by commentators, uh, not all, but some on the basis that it's awkward. Certainly is. And we might add it's actually confusing and it's even problematic right on the face of it that God would be a witness against God. But what if the text at this point is not giving us a theology lesson, but rather simply expressing to us the confusion going on in Job's mind concerning God flowing out of his own experience? We must not reject what Scripture says because it seems awkward to us. So let's try to piece together Job's struggle, Job's thinking here. He knows the gospel of the coming Christ. He knows the nature of God's covenant well enough to have grasped that by faith, sinners like him are justified once and for all in the sight of God. Even Old Testament believers had a grasp of justification and the beautiful and comforting truth that once we have been brought into fellowship with God and our sins are forgiven, our relationship with God as one of love and fellowship is sealed for all eternity. Yes, we still sin and there may be chastening, but God does not turn against his justified people in hateful wrath. Now we may experience what feels like wrath, but we are to know as people of faith that God is not against us, ever. How could he? In, in the New Testament, we have those beautiful words of Romans 8, verses 31 through 32, where it says, if God is for us, and he is, right? He is for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It was God's own plan that his son, the Messiah, would take the wrath we deserve for our sin once and for all. And Job knows himself to be a man of faith, a man of repentance, a man who trusts in the salvation offered through the Messiah. And so on the one hand, he is compelled to view God as a God of love and a God of covenant. But what is, is distressing is that this is the God who seems absent. This is the God Job hopes he can appeal to and find answers. This is because on the other hand, God seems hateful. And Job can't 
explain the actions of God toward him, they seem utterly contrary to the covenant and grace. The problem is that Job is experiencing suffering that feels like wrath, even though he doesn't know of any sin in his life that would prompt God's displeasure, not even a fatherly, loving, chastening type of displeasure. He, from his perspective, God is for some unknown reason against him. He cannot figure out what else but anger could account for his trials. And then we have his friends who have been constantly reinforcing that, that, that line of thinking. They are, they're telling him that God is angry over his sin and that he needs to repent. And so this leaves Job with what feels like two gods to deal with, a God who inexplicably is coming against him in wrath, and yet a God who has promised forgiveness to those who trust in him. What is Job to think? Who is the true God? And what we see is Job by faith again and again holding on to the view of God as gracious or at least wanting to. And as an expression of faith, Job envisions God as a witness in heaven for justice and truth who will surely argue and win the case against the God who is currently against him. Is it proper to speak of God this way? To paint what Job is saying in the best possible light, perhaps rather than thinking of two distinct gods, perhaps we might say, well, Job is viewing God as conflicted within himself, not sure whether to be loving or angry. Or perhaps what Job wants is for God to talk to himself and figure out once and for all the stance that he's going to take towards Job. Now, these kinds of explanations might make us feel somewhat more comfortable Um, but they don't do justice to the actual wording that Job uses of God arguing against God. As repulsive as it is to think of two gods, Job is struggling to reconcile the God that he has put his faith in with the God who has made his life miserable. And Job is hoping that the covenant God of grace will prevail to defend him and get the God who has seemingly forgotten the gospel to relent from attacking him. The same perspective, as odd as it is, is found in chapter 17. Job begins chapter 17 reflecting on the, stad, the, the, the rather sad state of his life. In verses 1 and 2, he says, My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Clearly, he's discouraged. Based on his poor and declining health, he is convinced his life is just about at its end. And then we have verse 2, where what's making things worse are mockers. Provoke him to anger and despair. These mockers are actually his friends. Commentators will tell you that's what we believe that he's referring to. These mockers are his friends. And their provoking words are their incessant message that he's done something very wicked to deserve such intense suffering. While he knows his own heart and life to know that their accusations of sin ring hollow, he he still finds his eye dwelling on their provocation. This is a a Hebrew Hebrew way of saying he can't turn his attention, he can't turn off his mind from thinking about the things that they have said. The word dwells literally refers to someone taking up residence and lodging somewhere. The provocations of Job's friends have lodged in his mind. It's 
It's not evident in our English translations, but in the Hebrew, verse 2 actually uses an oath formula where it says, if there be not such and such, which is true, then may such and such happen. The flow of thought is something like this, beginning with verse 2. God, it is surely the case that there are mockers about me. And, and so bad is their attack on me that my eye dwells on their provocation. And the, Hebrew, and the wording in the Hebrew indicates that Job is taking up these words as a kind of oath, as though to say, God, if I am falsely accusing these mockers, if, this, if, if these, these, these mockers are, are, are actually telling the truth, then you go ahead and punish me. And so sure is Job that he is being unjustly mistreated by his friends that in verse 3, he boldly, this is a very bold statement, he calls on God to lay down a pledge for him. These words are, are so significant that really the rest of the sermon is going to be focusing upon this particular expression um, that of God laying down a pledge for him. And notice that this is where again we find wording of God doing something over against God like there are two gods. For Job pleads in verse 3, God, lay down a pledge for me with yourself. God, as judge, please be my pledge with yourself. So what is meant by this pledge? Your translation might have surety. And uh, there are several scenarios where we might find a pledge being given, uh, a pledge or a surety. Um, it shows up in the context of a loan. Your neighbor comes to you and asks that you might put up a pledge on his behalf. Um, he wants to borrow money from a lender. He doesn't have enough collateral, and so he asks you to put up security in which you promise to pay the loan if he defaults. That would be one scenario. Or you are the one giving your neighbor a loan, and you want him to give you a pledge that he will pay you back. And you probably can remember from uh, your Old Testament reading how a neighbor would give his cloak as a pledge or surety of paying back his loan. Bail money is a form of pledge or surety that is given to assure the courts that the defendant will show up at the prescribed time. When you mortgage a house or land, your property itself is the security to the bank that they are going to get their money paid back if you default on your loan. There are also times in Scripture, this is a little bit different of an idea, but there, there are times in Scripture when a person gives himself as a pledge. Uh, like when Judah gave himself to Jacob, his father, as a pledge of Benjamin's safety while taking him to Egypt. By Judah's pledging himself to his father on behalf of Benjamin, he was saying that he would take responsibility if there, were, if there was any harm that came to his brother Benjamin. He would suffer the consequences of failure. He would bear the blame. And so a pledge could be a substitute. There's also in Scripture more than once a request from men in trouble for God to be their pledge. In Isaiah 38, verse 14, Hezekiah is calling on God to be his pledge of safety. I'm going to turn there for a moment to Isaiah chapter 38, 14. I want you to see that that's the wording that's used there. 
So Hezekiah is, these are his words that Isaiah is recording for us. In Isaiah 38, 14, it says, Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp, I moan like a dove, my eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed, be my pledge of safety. So what does that mean? That Hezekiah would ask God to be his pledge of safety. I think the best way to, 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 to work through this is to picture Hezekiah being dragged to prison as a debtor who hasn't paid his debt. In reality, he is dying of a disease and he feels himself to be under the judgment of God. But using the figure of a debtor being hauled to prison, the debtor, right, he would be hoping, he would be pleading that someone would step forward and offer a pledge of repayment, either pledging that he will pay the debt if the man continues to not be able to pay or that he will put forth collateral on behalf of the man. And this is analogous to Hezekiah's relationship with God and what he's pleading for here. His, his illness was God's judgment, and he pleads for God to be his pledge. And you see the irony in this. God is the creditor. God is the, the one to whom Hezekiah is accountable. And so on the very face of it, this is an odd request. It would be like the debtor who was going to prison pleading with the judge to spare him from prison by putting up collateral on his behalf or being willing to give the pledge of personally vouching for him that he will pay his creditor back. Actually, the situation is even more weird than that because Hezekiah's debt is with God and God is the judge. So that the more accurate analogy would be the debtor owing money not to some neighbor, but to the judge himself. And the implied scenario was that the debtor hasn't been paying his debt. And so he stands before this judge to whom he owes money. And he's standing before him in court for a sentencing. And the man pleads with the judge to be his pledge. It's like, judge, I owe you money. I haven't been making my payments. That's what's brought me here. But will you please put up collateral for me? Will you promise to pay my debt for me if I continue to default on my loan? And so he's asking the judge to be willing to just let the debt go if he can't make his payments. Can you imagine a judge agreeing to do that? It's crazy, and yet this is a powerful analogy to the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 says that Christ is our surety. We just read that verse earlier. Actually, in the ESV, it says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The ESV uses that word guarantor, and a quick look at a Greek lexicon says that the word means a surety or security. When a person pledges to cover a person's loan, that serves as a guarantee that the creditor will get paid, and so we can understand why the ESV translators would use that word guarantor. But you must also know that by that translation, the, the word is, um, uh, or I should say, you won't be able to see it, but you ought to know that the word is referring to the same thing as when Hezekiah and Job asked for God to be their pledge. Well, think of what that means. We are the ones who have sinned. We are in debt to God, and Jesus steps forward and takes responsibility for our debt for us. 
There's some important details about this analogy that should be kept in mind. The situation is not that we are in debt to God and are able to make our payments. And so, um, you know, some might view it that way and then think of Jesus as just our backstop if, uh, in case we default. But no, we have failed to pay our debts. In fact, we have never been paying our debts, not at all. And when we think of our debt to God, it's not that we owe money, of course, that's not the idea, but what we owe God is our obedience by virtue of him creating us and entering into a covenant of life with us. We are obligated to obey his law at every point and without fail. Because of this failure to meet our obligation to glorify God with our obedience, we deserve death, the spiritual death of separation from God, also physical death as the entrance into hell where we would suffer punishment for all eternity. God is the creditor and he is the judge and justice says our debt is to be paid with our lives for all eternity. But God in his grace steps forward and in mercy and grace gives his son as our surety. The Lord Jesus Christ was given by the Father He voluntarily offered himself to be our surety, to take responsibility for our debt of sin. And notice the unique situation in having Jesus as our surety. It isn't that in being appointed our surety, he might have to cover our debt. Because you think of that in the context of business, in the context of a loan, a surety is given as a pledge to take responsibility, right? If the loan cannot be repaid or is not repaid, and, and the hope is that the surety won't have to be used. Well, Jesus became our surety knowing that we were unable to pay our debt. There's no possibility of us uh, not being in debt to begin with as we are born in sin. By nature, it can do nothing but sin. And then there was no possibility of us being able to pay the debt of our sin. Even if we could suddenly start being able to do perfectly good works, which we are not, but even if we were, they would not cover the debt of our past sins. The actual situation is that we are born in debt. We add to our debt every day by our failure to give God the perfect and perpetual obedience that he deserves. And so when Jesus steps up to be our surety, he is coming forward really to pay our debt for us. And that is what he did when he died on the cross. His body given as a blood sacrifice on the cross was Jesus paying our debt for us. God's justice says that for us to be forgiven, for us to have a life of fellowship with God in heaven, our sin must be punished. There must be a perfect record before God of obedience. And as our surety taking responsibility for us, Jesus was punished in our place as he died there on the cross under the wrath of God. He also offered to God a perfect sacrifice as one who had never sinned and thus earned for us a record before God of perfect obedience. And so by being our surety, Jesus has met all of the obligations to God for us. Notice how Hebrews 7.22 relates the role of Jesus as our surety to the covenant. He is, we are told, the guarantor or pledge or surety of a better covenant, Hebrews says. Hebrews 8, verse 6, just a short 
little bit later after Hebrews 7.22, continues much the same thought when it says that, that the covenant Jesus mediates is a better covenant. And there we have the word mediator, mediator, and a good definition for a mediator is one who guarantees the performance of all of the terms stipulated in a covenant. The presence of a mediator assumes there is a covenant. And a covenant implies an agreement. The covenant that God makes with his people, that he's made with us, is not by any means to be equated with a business agreement, but it is analogous in the sense that there are two parties and there are obligations on both sides. And when a business agreement takes place in the form of a loan, the surety serves as a kind of mediator by telling the creditor, you are going to get paid no matter what happens. And by telling the debtor, you need to, to, to meet your obligations and not force me to step in. So let's apply this to the covenant that God has made with his people in Christ by covenant. God has agreed to save his people. He has promised to send a savior who would die in our place to pay for our sin and reconcile us to him. That's the covenant from his side. From our, from our side, we are obligated to obey God. And what a beautiful thing it is what Jesus does as our mediator. He steps forward to guarantee the performance of all of the terms of the covenant on both sides. He is now at God's right hand as the resurrected Christ. And his presence there guarantees that the sacrifice of himself on the cross has been accepted as payment for our sins. The risen Christ is the ongoing proof and guarantee that God has saved us. But then what about our covenant obligations? Well, we cannot meet them. We're not able to meet the obligations of God's law to love him and the neighbor. But Jesus, as our mediator, who is also our savior, guarantees that we will meet the terms of the covenant. As our heavenly mediator, Jesus rules over us. He works in us all that is needed for us to be right with God and to experience his blessings. He works in us repentance and faith so that we can be justified in the sight of God. He sanctifies us by the work of his Holy Spirit. And the result is that all of the obligations of the covenant are met in us through him. He is the guarantee of that. Jesus is the surety and the mediator of the covenant. So what does this have to do with Job? In Job 17.3, Job says to God, Lay down a pledge for me with you. Job appears to be under the judgment of God. His so-called friends are rubbing that in. And uh, what Job wants is for God to side with him against his friends, which is really to side with him against God as a God of hate. Hezekiah asked God to be his pledge of safety. He was appealing to God's mercy over against his justice, asking that God would protect him from his justice. And Hezekiah, as a man of faith, with a limited understanding of the Old Testament, probably had only an inkling of what he was really asking. He was asking God to take care of his own justice against him and show him love and peace and safety. Certainly without a full understanding, or at least without the, the understanding that we have today, he was asking, and he didn't really know this, 
but he was asking for Jesus to be his surety and his mediator. And Job is essentially asking the same thing. The situation is that his friends are against him. And while he has been talking about going to court with God, this time he wants to take his friends to court. And what he hopes is that God will take his side over against his friends. And next time we will consider what Job's friends are like as his plaintiffs, as they, they come against him and they try to say that God is also against him. And uh, whether these people, as Job describes them, can really expect God to be on their side and defend them. And more importantly, we will consider further Job's plea for God to defend him, to stand up for him, to stand up for his side. And in a burst of faith, Job has the gospel covenantal idea that his God of justice, who seems to be against him, might actually come to his aid in mercy. Job cannot figure out why God is offended, but he also knows he cannot fix the problem. But notice, Job does not give up hope, and that is a mark of faith. While he is sure from his suffering he has offended God, and while he has no hope of himself making things right, what else can he do? But perhaps God will lay down a pledge for him on his behalf by paying his debt for him. What an amazing perspective and hope Job has. Job believes his offended God may actually be willing to pay his penalty for him and set him free. And as crazy as that sounds, Job is correct. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And have you by faith asked God to lay down a pledge on your behalf with himself? And do you know Jesus as that surety and pledge what an amazing thing god what 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 great news good news that god would meet the demands of his own justice for our benefit amen let us pray god and father we do thank you for the lord jesus christ we father thank you that there is an answer to how you can be both a god of wrath and a god of love that in the Lord Jesus Christ, righteousness and peace kiss. They come together. They are reconciled. Father, we thank you for Jesus willing to stand in our place and to take the, the payment of debt that we owe upon himself, that God's justice, that your justice, God, would be satisfied on our behalf. Lord, uh, we thank you that Job understands these things now better than he did as he is in your presence. And uh, Father, we, we uh, thank you for how you have revealed these things to us for our comfort. And uh, Father, we thank you for this good news. It's been fulfilled in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.